All right, after a refreshing pause for Easter last week, we are returning uh, this morning to 2 Samuel. Uh, and, and so please open with me, if you brought your own Bible today, to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, you can find the passage for this morning in your bulletin or on page 274 of those blue Bibles, as is most convenient and helpful for you. Uh, we have, including today and including uh, this sermon today, five more uh, sermons in Second Samuel until we come to the end of this uh, study, this book. Uh, and we have reached, and I, I said this two weeks ago, uh, but we have reached the conclusion of the book. And today, we're really going into the heart of the conclusion of the book. Now, if, if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I want to remind you of what I said two weeks ago in terms of the structure of this conclusion, just because it's helpful for us to, to be able to understand what's taking place here and what the author of 2 Samuel wants us to understand. So two weeks ago, if you recall it, at, uh, the, at chapter 21, we read the story of the sinfulness of King Saul and the resulting famine in the land and then David's uh, making atonement for that. So we started there with the sinfulness of King Saul, the results of the sin and atonement. And then in chamber 24, the very end of 2nd Samuel, uh, uh, Samuel, we will see a similar story, a similar event with David. We'll see David fall into sin, a pestilence be upon the people because of that sin, and then atonement made for that sin. So we have two kings on either side and, and stories that show us that we're going to need a better king than these. Even kings need atonement to be made for their sins. Then you come in from that and you have two sections that are stories of, if you will, warfare with the Philistines, but in particular, the deeds of David's mighty men. David's warriors uh, are on either side there. Now, Today, I am skipping over the first of those sections. I will pick it up thematically when we come back out the other side. But then when you come into the heart of this, you have two hymns that are there, two songs that are provided with us in chapter 22 and then in chapter 23, at least at the beginning of chapter 23 as well. So today when we come to what we're going to be reading today and for now for the, the next couple of weeks as well, we are really at the heart of the book. We're at the heart not only of the conclusion, but we're at the heart of the book as a whole. And when we come to this place, we come to the conclusion with a song. Uh, now, because of its length, I'm going to take uh, half of it this week, and then I'll take half of it next week. Let me read for us, then, this song. And, and just so that we, we follow along with it, uh, I'm going to provide for us headers. If you look either at your bulletin, your Bible, uh, you will see that there are line breaks in this song. And where each of those line breaks are, you've got a little bit of a new section. I'll give you a header uh, for it as I read along just so that it makes sense and we can follow along with it. So here this portion of God's holy, God's mighty, uh, God's glorious word. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield 
and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Now this next section is going to describe the peril that David found himself in. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Verse 7 is his prayer while he's in that distress. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. These next verses then, from 8 down to 16, are a poetic description of God coming on behalf of David, in defense of David. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. This then Next section describes the deliverance that David experienced. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted. In me. And then this last section, or at least the last section that is before us today, is David describing his own life, his own uprightness as one of the immediate causes for the Lord delivering him. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our rock, David's rock and our rock, thank you for this precious word. Thank you that we can come to this place now and hear this description and sing this description of you in all of your saving might. Uh, Lord, encourage our hearts as we consider these things today. Jesus, we pray in your great name. You are our Savior, our Deliverer, our King. Amen. I, I think personally that there is something absolutely comforting and wonderful, perhaps even a little bit surprising, that as we 
approach here the end of what has admittedly been a, a, a tough book. Right? This, is, this is a hard book. It's been a painful book. It's a, it's a difficult journey that we've been on. There's something wonderful about the fact that when we come right to the heart of it, we come to a song. We come to a song that describes it. A song is actually at the heart of this book. A song, a poem, is actually the key to understanding the narrative that we've been looking at now for however many months it has been since we've been in 2 Samuel and then take it all the way back to 1 Samuel as well. Hannah's song began uh, the book of 1 Samuel, if you recall it. I put some of Hannah's song uh, on the front of the bulletin by way of reminder for us. But Hannah's song starts us off, and it is a song of anticipation. She's expecting the Lord and praying for the Lord to bring forth an anointed one. And then she says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. David's songs open in the first place, 2 Samuel. So in 2 Samuel, if you recall it, I think it's 2 Samuel chapter 2, we find there the song of David, the, the lamentation that he has after the death of Saul and of Jonathan. The song, How the Mighty Have Fallen. Oh, How the Mighty Have Fallen is the song that opened us up in 1 Samuel. And now we come to the end uh, with this song as well, a song to close the book, a, a song of reflection and of praise. And, and so the songs of David are, are the revealing and the deepest expression of David's heart. Now we can see it in the narratives themselves, but if you want to know what makes David tick, what is inside of him, then you go to the songs and you look at the songs that he wrote. He is a man after God's own heart, and that is what the songs reveal. Uh, in the New Testament, there is a passage that is, if not the, it's certainly one uh, of the most well-known passages that describe the place of singing and the place of songs uh, in the life of the faithful of God. It says this in Ephesians 5, that we are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Making melody to the Lord in your heart. Singing and making melody. That's what David is doing here at the end of this book. That's what our writer wants us to see as he's bringing it to the conclusion. See a man whose heart has been changed. See a man whose heart is a heart for the Lord. David does that. And God's deliverances allowed him to be able to sing this song. And this is what the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ does for us as well. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. And that puts a new song in our lives. It puts a new melody 
inside of our hearts and it permeates our thoughts and our lives as well. So all of us, most of us, may not be uh, songwriters or composers or musicians, but to some extent, to one extent or another, whether, whether for better or for worse, we are all, as the people of God, singers. Now, David was, of course, a singer and a composer and a musician as well. One Jewish source, I've talked about it before, one Jewish source attributes 4,000 songs to David. We don't have a record of 4,000 songs from David, but we've got any number of them that are contained in the Psalter. And so David pours out his own heart in songs that are contained there, not only as an expression for him, but very consciously as David prepares his songs and writes his songs, his expectation is that the congregation of the faithful join in singing, that his songs become our songs as well. So it is a choir that is singing, it is a congregation that is singing. He expects us to sing along with him. And we sing along with him, whether we sing in joy or in sorrow, or whether we sing in thankfulness for what the Lord has done in our lives, or whether we sing, as we've seen already in Second Samuel, whether we sing in confession and in lament over the sin in our own lives. So this song that is before us today in chapter 22 is, if you're paying attention or if you've looked at the, uh, the way the bulletin is structured today, this is also in the Psalter. Okay, this is Psalm 18 in the Psalter. It's hard to say exactly when it was written, like which date. We've got that statement in verse 1 that's paralleled in the beginning of uh, Psalm 18 as well, or at least in the superscription of Psalm 18. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now remember, uh, as we're looking at this conclusion, this conclusion is not reflecting now a chronological unpacking of David's life. It's a thematic organization that's going on here in the end. So this song could have been written towards the end of David's life uh, at a point where we are in the story here, or perhaps from that description that I just read for us from verse one, it could have been written when he was anointed as king over both Judah and Israel, when he had taken Jerusalem, when he had had victory from many of the surrounding uh, countries that were or, or, or against many of the surrounding uh, enemies that were there. So it could have been written at that point in his life. Now, instead of being about one particular situation, as we know some of the psalms are, this seems to be more of a compilation, of a, of a retrospective of David's life as he is a man who is king, living before the Lord, who is his rock, the rock and his rock. So if you kind of compare it to Hannah's song, Hannah's song was a prophetic expectation a prayer that the Lord would do this. And David's song, as we pick it up here at the end of 2 Samuel, 
is really a statement that says, God heard that prayer. God answered what Hannah prayed, and I'm the evidence of that. This is what God has done. He has anointed his king. He has delivered and granted strength to his king as well. So this is a testimony of faithfulness to God's fulfilling those earlier words. Now, I would like to point out one difference that exists between uh, Psalm 18 and the song as it's recorded for us here in chapter 22. Uh, and again, if you were paying very close attention, you may have caught this. So our call to worship, page two of your bulletins this morning. Our call to worship was the first three verses of Psalm 18. And in the first three verses, or in the first verse of Psalm 18, we have this line, I love you, O Lord, my strength. I love you, O Lord, my strength. That line is not in 2 Chronicles 22. It does not start the psalm here. It troubles me. <laughs> it troubles me that that doesn't start it. Now, the best explanation that I have found uh, for why the difference in that particular phrase at the beginning is that perhaps when the Psalter is gathered up for liturgical use, perhaps this is more of a narratival use of it, and when the Psalter is gathered for uh, use in the congregation singing, then that is included there by David to say, don't catch the meaning of uh, this song. In any case, I think that's a critical line. That's why I included it as our call to worship. It's critical to hear those words, I love you, O Lord, my strength, at the very beginning of this song that we've got. Because I think what it says to us is something incredibly important about this this song that we're going to be looking at now this week and next week, it says to us, this is a love song. It's a love song. It is a song from a lover to a beloved, and a response, if you will, from the beloved back to the lover. And of all the things that we might say about it, understand that in the first place. This is a man who loves the Lord because the Lord, to bring First John into it, had first loved him. The melody in our heart that we are to hum along with and the songs that we are to sing, they are love songs even when, and hear this carefully, even when it is a love besieged. A love besieged. That's what David experiences throughout the entirety of his life. When is the quiet moment in David's life? When was the time when his love wasn't a love besieged? And David says, even in the midst of that, even in the midst of all of that that has gone on in my life, there's a love song in my heart that God has placed there, a song of praise and love to our God. So as we then turn specifically now to the text itself. I want to be careful. I, I don't want to take apart every verse of this because then when you do that in a song like this, you can kind of lose some of the, the main theme and the impact of it. So I'm going to be careful to, not to do that. But I do want to at least allow us to see some themes that are in here. And, and I think the, the first thing that we'll notice if you just zoomed out and you looked at this as a whole, is that there are two central perspectives that are part of this song that is before us. On the one hand, 
the song is profoundly and clearly doxological. It's doxological, sorry, big word. It's all about praise to God. This is a song about God himself. And you look at it and you can see that clearly. Clearly, It is about the worship of God. It is about the praise of God. It is about giving glory to God. Verse 4, just as an example. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And then, if you've got your Bibles open, verse 50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. This is a doxological song, a song of praise to God. And on the other hand, on the other hand, it is deeply, it is profoundly and intensely personal. It is about David. It's about David and it's about God at the same time. So just at the first part of that. God is praised in the song, right, as the rock, primarily. That's a very familiar metaphor in many of the songs of Scripture, from the song of Moses onward, that God is a rock. It's a testimony to his strength, to his saving power, to the fact that he's a shelter for us, a refuge for us, that he's a firm place for us to stand, a firm foundation in the midst of the shifting world that, in which we live. That in the midst of all of the troubled waters, God is the rock upon which you can stand, or if we moved into the New Testament, upon which you can build your house and build your house. God is praised as a fortress and a shield, emphasizing his protectiveness of his people. And then we have this rather incredible description from verse 8 through 16 of God coming on David's behalf as a mighty warrior, but pictured there with, with smoke coming out of his nostrils as he comes, and these coals of fire coming out, and a, a, a thundering voice and lightnings that go before him as he rides upon a cherub with the darkness as a canopy uh, going out behind him, this picture of the warrior God on David's behalf. So you, you've got this, this focus on God himself and his mightiness and his strength in the psalm. But none of these descriptions that are contained in here are of God just given in abstraction or given in isolation. This is not an attempt. David isn't just trying to say, hey, can you tell me some of the attributes of God? And David lists out, well, God is this, 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 and this here. It's not just that. Instead, all of these things that David is talking about here are intimately connected to David himself. And I trust you caught this because it's right there when you look at it, right? The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock. I take refuge, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. I call upon the Lord. All of it is in this first person, this possessive voice that is there. God isn't just a rock. God isn't just... <laughs> Sorry, this is no disrespect uh, to Martin Luther. He's not just a mighty fortress. He's my mighty fortress. That's what David's point is. He's not just out there somewhere abstractly as a fortress somewhere out there. He's mine. 
And of course, the problems that are described here as well, they're not general problems that are described in verses 5 through 6. They're David's problems, right? They, the waves of death encompassed me. They assailed me. They entangled, in, in, sorry, entangled me. They confronted me. And then in verse 7, David cries out, it's my distress, my God, I called, my voice, my cry. God is not a theory to David. God is not merely a higher power. God is not some distant potentate who potentially might help him in some situation if he's favorably disposed to do something that seems to make sense. Instead, the idea here is he is mine. David can say, he is mine, and I am his. He's mine, and I am his. That is the heart of our faith. It is, and it must be personal, or it is not. It is, and it must be personal, or it's not. And it's personal. It's personal for David. It is between David and God. It is between you and God. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to earth actually with smoke coming out of his nostrils, with hot coals coming out of his mouth, with lightning and thundering. He came as a baby. He came as a baby born of a woman. In other words, it was personal. It was as personal and as intimate as it could get when the Son of God, who has all of that authority and all of that might and all of that power, says, no, 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 I'll come in the form of a servant. I'll take the form of a servant upon myself, not this form here. And it's personal. And so when the Savior is on earth, he is able to turn to the Lord and say, my Father. And the Father turns to him and says, this is my Son who is here. And we read it last week, right, of Thomas. We read the account of Thomas at the, uh, after the resurrection when he sees the Lord, when he hears the Lord, when he puts his fingers on the Lord at the direction of the Lord, and he cries out, my Lord and my God. Not Lord and God, but mine. My Lord and my God. Jesus himself in the high priestly prayer in John 17 says to his father, all mine are yours and all yours are mine. This is a love song. And in a love song, you express that kind of possession and you express it with joy from our heart to the heart of our God. And so just that observation then, the song is deeply doxological, it is intensely personal, and you do not need to choose between those two. You don't need to pick. Would you like to have the formal declaration that God is God, or would you like to have the my God? You can have both. You can have both. The next thing I think that strikes us so universally in this song is that it is clearly a song of deliverance, 
a song in which David is praising the Lord for the countless times that the Lord has saved him, right? It's almost in every verse. Verse 1, the Lord is, sorry, 2, the Lord is my deliverer. Verse 3, the Lord is my salvation. You are my savior. You save me from violence. Verse 4, I'm saved from my enemies. Verse 5 through 6 describe the dire straits from which David is saved. Verse 7 then describes the prayer for the deliverance. And as we've noted, verses 8 through 16 describe the poetry of the deliverance, the power of God that comes down to deliver David in these circumstances. Now, now note this, the, the kind of imagery that's used here in that poetic section of 8 through 16 is imagery that we kind of recognize, biblically speaking. It sounds uh, a lot like Sinai, right, with all of the smoke and the fire and the, the, the sounds that are there as part of it. Maybe a little bit like the Red Sea, where the, the waters are being parted and the foundations of the earth are being exposed uh, as they're there. Maybe even a little bit like the flood uh, is part of the, the imagery that is used here. But, but also the imagery is of is, if you will, of God coming as a mighty storm, as a, a mighty storm, a warrior aroused because of the enemies against David. Uh, and so he's coming in this sense in defense of David, in defense of the anointed one, the Lord comes. Now here's what's interesting, and I think Ralph Davis is the one who points this out in his commentary. But if you think of the life of David, all of us know, and we've, reca we can, we can, we've talked about it for months now, but all of us can identify uh, the way that the Lord got him out of any number of situations that seem like there's no way out of this particular situation. But think about the life of David and you actually don't see these kind of super miraculous type of things, this kind of dramatic stuff that's being described in this poetry. Uh, that more belongs to the earlier periods that I just identified. David experiences, if you will, a more providential hand of the working of God, a working of God in the circumstances. Not that there aren't miraculous things. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Uh, and God is doing these things. But God is oftentimes organizing uh, situations around David to protect him. But what David sees behind it is that might, that power, that kind of God is on his side, even though he doesn't experience the kind of things, for example, that Moses and the people experience. And I think there's something uh, significant, beautiful in the way that David understands this power and the passion of God on his behalf. And then as we move on, you see this deliverance then celebrated in verses 17 through 20. That God delivered him, and we get this beautiful description of the deliverance. He sent from on high, he took me, drew me out of the many waters. Uh, and, and, and we can appreciate here the strength of God to save and to deliver him. We can appreciate this deliverance for David uh, in the first place as a deliverance in, in life, in time and space that he experienced as the king, as the anointed one of God. We could go back through his life and think of all the times, whether it's Goliath or uh, the Amorites or the Philistines or Saul himself, and the way that God 
delivered him from those things. And David celebrates those. But here's what we need to see in light of the, the broader perspective of all of Scripture, is that these deliverances that David experienced in his life from these enemies that were surrounding him were deliverances that anticipated a more significant deliverance, a more significant deliverance from greater enemies than the ones that David experienced, right? A, a deliverance from sin itself, from death itself, from hell itself, from all of hell's minions as well. That is ultimately the deliverance that David needs, that all of us need. It is good, it is right to pray to God and to celebrate when God delivers us out of any number of earthly situations. We ought to give praise and thanks to God for that. David was saved from death many times, but he eventually dies. Now, we just had Easter and Good Friday last week. Jesus, David's son, is not saved from death. He's not saved from death and from those who pursued him as his enemies. Instead, he provides a salvation as he is delivered up and delivered not out of death, but as he is delivered up and unto death itself. David praises God for the fact that God didn't allow him to be killed in these various situations. Jesus is going to be obedient as a king and go through death itself. Not around death, not avoiding death, but going to have victory through death itself and then over death unto life eternal. And that puts a song in our hearts. Verse 20 is a beautiful description. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God delighted in David. Brought him into this broad place. Now, in a sense, that broad place would be temporal. Remember how David was constrained at various times in a cave at any number of times. When he says, I've been brought into a broad place, he's saying, I've come into a land of freedom. I've come into Jerusalem, into possession of all of this land as the king. It's a broad place. It's a firm place for me to stand. And God delighted in him. But the heart of the song actually becomes that Jesus himself delivers us onto a broader place, a firmer place. To Jesus is given all of the new heavens and the new earth, all of the cosmos is under his rule because his father delighted in him. Because the father delighted in the anointed son, if you translate that word delighted in the song, in the song from the Hebrew to the Greek, it's the exact same word, this is with whom I am well pleased. I am well pleased with my song, my son. Now, the last section of the song that we'll take a look at today is probably the one that uh, throws us off a little bit or threw you off when I read it a little bit earlier. What do you think of David's claims that I read for us? Verse 21, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I've kept the ways of the Lord 
and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. What did you think when you heard that? Did it, did it raise an eyebrow? And you go, okay, wait, we've actually kind of read the book. We, we know, this isn't the beginning of the story. This is kind of the end of the story. And, and even, even if it was written before his great sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah, nevertheless, the writer, the, the writer of 2 Samuel, he knows what has taken place when he sticks this psalm right here. And I'm sure he's not just doing it for ironic effect that David would write this or used to write this before that time. It feels like an odd kind of interlude in the midst of a psalm that is praising God for his deliverance. You kind of listen to this and you go, David, what are you saying here? So, so let's ask the question in as bare a way as we can possibly ask it that I help think helps us to clarify. David, are you saying that because you were the sinless king, blameless in all your ways, that you were righteous in all your ways, that that is the basis of your deliverance. Is that what you are saying? Because that's what, it, on the surface of it, right, that's what it seems to be saying. But as soon as you ask the question in that way, which is the, the very barest way you can ask the question, it's an absurd question. We, we, we don't need a lot of, don't over-technicalize this, technicalize? Don't, over, don't be overly precise with this here in the midst of this poetry that David is, is using here. We would know the absurdity of David trying to proclaim at any point in his life some kind of sinlessness, as absurd for him as it would be absurd for any of us to proclaim that as well. We've got the record. We've got the Psalms. We've got the testimony. He does not proclaim any kind of sinlessness that is in his life. We recognize it. Now that said though, appreciating that, David is claiming something here and we don't want to miss it. David is claiming integrity. He is claiming a wholeheartedness. He is claiming fidelity. He is saying, I have sought after the Lord. I have pursued obedience to the Lord. And, and the most perhaps obvious example for us is, I never laid a hand on Saul. He was the Lord's anointed. I also was the Lord's anointed. I never laid a hand on him. I never grasped at the kingship that was promised unto me. I waited for it to be delivered unto me by you. And so David is saying before God, I didn't do that. I waited for you to be my deliverer. And the clear promise of Scripture is this. The Lord will bless those who seek him and who walk in his ways. It's not a promise for no trouble, but it is a promise of blessing. We don't need to turn in Scripture to find this, right? Just think of Psalm 1. If you're going, where is that in Scripture? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but blessed is the man 
who meditates on the law of God day and night. That's, that's the man who is blessed. And what David is saying here is, that's what I've done. In my life, I've been a man who, with all of his faults, but with integrity, has sought after the Lord. David is saying, I didn't just go through the motions of devotion. Instead, I lived out my deliverance from God. He loved his Lord. And, and if you will, what he is doing here is he's putting a song, think of it around a New Testament phrase. I have fought the good fight. He's just putting it in song form. He's saying, I have fought the good fight. He loved God. Now, let's end with this. All of the Psalter finds its fulfillment with Christ. Okay? Not the anointed King David, but the anointed one to come. It's an anticipation of one to come. So now, let me do this. Let me read for you verses 21 to 25, the exact same verses, and you hear them in the mouth of Jesus Christ. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt, and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And he was resurrected from the dead, and the father said, Yep, I confirm. I affirm that what you have said about yourself is in fact true, that you are in fact justified, that you are declared to be righteous. Receive your reward. Receive the reward for your righteousness. What is the reward of the righteousness of Jesus Christ? It is his resurrection from the dead. It is his exaltation into the right hand, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. It is that he has given all rule and authority and dominion and power that it belongs to him. And there's one other part of his reward. Because of his righteousness, he will make many righteous. He will make many to be called righteous. I'm not going to turn to it. Look at Isaiah 53. The reward that is given to the suffering servant for his righteousness is many will be called righteous. It will be counted to them as their righteousness. That is the reward secured by the king. To some extent by David, to its full extent by King Jesus. Secured by him, given to us, his people. May we sing that song, this song with David, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the songs that are in your word, for the heart that is there. Lord, we long for a heart to love you and to worship you more, to see thee more clearly, to love you more dearly, to follow you more nearly. We pray that it would be true of us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn four.